All right, so I'm going to give you a scenario, and you're going to tell me what you would do. So let's say a 30-year-old woman comes into the emergency room with about one hour of symptoms. She's weak on the right side. She's having difficulty moving the right arm, and she's slurring her speech. My first thought at this time is I am concerned for a stroke in the acute um, setting. I'd say she'd be high on everybody's suspicion for stroke. Is atypical for somebody that age to have stroke? Okay. Well, I definitely want them to activate the code stroke system. Code stroke. All the code stroke? Uh, CTA of the brain and neck to look for any large vessel occlusion. I would make sure she's not on any anticoagulants. I would also make sure that she doesn't if have she's on any blood thinners, uh, any recent surgeries, surgeries um, uh, any cancer, if, especially cancer uh, involved in the brain. She's had any bleeding in the past, so she doesn't have any contraindications. Be safe to receive TPA. So I'm going to ask you a harder question. Okay. <laughs> Um, what if she were pregnant? Um, um, I've honestly never encountered that before. I would be a little uncomfortable giving TPA in a pregnant uh, female. Uh, it would probably make me panic. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to The Push. This is a pregnancy neurology podcast. Today's episode is all about stroke. If a pregnant patient comes in with a stroke, can you give TPA? That's a serious clot-busting medication, in case you're wondering. What about the usual tests, CTs and MRIs? Are they safe in pregnancy? And if your patient's taking blood thinners, how on earth are you going to get that baby out? We'll have the answers to all these questions and more over the next 15 minutes. But first, a story. Meet Lily. About five years ago, Lily was about to leave her house. I went downstairs, took the dog out. Went to put my purse on the side of me in the car. My vision just kind of split in half. So I actually grabbed my phone, called my husband. He ran downstairs, didn't know what was going on because he said I was kind of talking gibberish at the time. My equilibrium was shot. So I just kind of fell on the ground. So he found me on the ground, kind of freaked out, picked me up, threw me in the back seat, and just hightailed it over to... um, the nearest hospital. Meanwhile, I was talking about the Milky Way and what I was going to be for Halloween. Let's pause there. Because Halloween is actually one of my favorite holidays. I mean, come on, candy. But this was June and not October. And Lily was 23, not 12. So this was pretty bizarre behavior. Her husband took her to the ER at Rhode Island Hospital. I was completely numb on my right side. When they actually sat me in the chair, I just was slumped over. People had to do everything for me at that point. Lily turned out to have a stroke in her left thalamus. It caused double vision, unsteady gait, language disturbance, and numbness on the right side. She got a CAT scan and a CT angiogram, the tests you'd usually get in an acute stroke. She then got an MRI, MR angiogram of the head and neck, and even an MRV. Because in a younger patient with stroke, you'd worry about some of the more unusual causes. These are causes like cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, arterial dissection, migranous infarct, and arterial spasm. We usually do a hypercoagulable panel, looking for genetic or autoimmune tendencies to form clots. Lily turned out to have a PFO, otherwise known as a patent foramen ovale. They don't know if it actually, if that's what caused the stroke or if I had a, a clot from the birth control that just traveled up and because of the hole in the heart, went right to the head. But with a negative hypercoag panel, she went off birth control and onto a baby aspirin, and she's been taking baby aspirin ever since. Cut to the present, Lily's pregnant now. Are you excited? Very excited. Nervous? Very nervous. (laughs) She's worried she might have another stroke. Because having a stroke in the past puts you at risk for, you guessed it, another stroke. And being pregnant makes that risk even higher. The rate of stroke in pregnancy is two to three times that of age-matched non-pregnant controls. That's Dr. Naharika Mehta. She's an obstetrical medicine specialist at Women and Infants Hospital. So how common is stroke in pregnancy? 
I looked it up. 34 cases per 100,000 deliveries. That sounds pretty uncommon. But at busy hospitals like Rhode Island Hospital and Women and Infants just next door, it's just a matter of time before you're going to see it. Stroke and cerebral vascular disease account for 12% of maternal deaths in pregnancy. And stroke can cause some pretty profound disability. It's a medical emergency. So in cases of stroke, Dr. Mehta advises not to hold back. In most circumstances, we would manage the patient as if she was not pregnant. And whatever needs to be done for her to improve her prognosis should be performed regardless of the fact that she is pregnant. What can we do during Lily's pregnancy to prevent another stroke from happening? In medical school, most of us learn that anti-stroke drugs like aspirin and warfarin are too risky to be given in pregnancy. But Dr. Mehta says it's complicated. Since you bring up aspirin, definitely a baby aspirin is considered safe for use in pregnancy. We have data from over 30,000 women in different trials. However, full-dose aspirin is noted to be a teratogen, and so we typically would not use a full-dose aspirin during pregnancy. But what about warfarin? What about anticoagulation? We do not use novel oral anticoagulation agents at all. We do not use Coumadin in pregnancy either, except under certain extenuating circumstances like a metallic heart valve. The convenience and safety profile of low molecular weight heparins has kind of made them the drugs of choice. So how do you choose which blood thinner to use after a stroke? As it turns out, it depends on the cause of the stroke. First off, a baby aspirin is just as good as a full dose when it comes to preventing stroke. Also, there are only a few situations in which you'd choose anticoagulation over antiplatelet therapy after a stroke. For instance, you can prove the clot started in the heart or that the patient's stroke is due to cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. Then there are certain hypercoagulable conditions that warrant anticoagulation. But practically everybody else gets a baby aspirin. And that's exactly what Lily's doing. She'll be taking a baby aspirin and watching for neurological symptoms throughout the pregnancy. She'll also be watching her blood pressure, and that's because hypertension is the number one cause of stroke in pregnancy, especially when it's part of preeclampsia. Okay, so far we've learned what to do when a young, non-pregnant woman comes in with an acute stroke. And we've learned how to prevent secondary strokes during her pregnancy. But what we really want to know is, what do we do if a pregnant woman comes to the ER with an acute stroke? To put it together, I asked the stroke expert, Dr. Karen Fury. She's written a number of guidelines on stroke, but she told me that writing guidelines can get tricky when there's hardly any data. I can't imagine um, that anyone is going to do a randomized clinical trial of these procedures or therapies in pregnant women. The risk is just too high. People will continue to collect their anecdotal experience, and then they'll be put together in a series. And um, although there's tremendous bias in that type of a, of a study design, uh, that's probably the only way we'll begin to be able to discern which cases are high risk, which are low risk, and where the best outcomes for mother and baby lie. I ran a case by Dr. Fury the same one you heard at the beginning of this podcast. What if a 30-year-old pregnant woman shows up to the ER with mild right-hand weakness and clumsiness and unsteady on her feet? The first thing to do would be to scan her immediately to look for any uh, evidence of intracerebral hemorrhage on the CT scan. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did she just say CT scan? While MRIs and even MRAs and MRVs are safe in pregnancy, tests like CT that use radiation and contrast, wouldn't that harm the fetus? Well, according to Dr. Fury and most of the other experts I interviewed, this is a situation where the risks associated with having a stroke outweigh the potential risks to the fetus. And as it turns out, fetal exposure to radiation and contrast are pretty low in these scenarios. 
so you definitely get the CT scan, and probably also a CTA to look at the blood vessels. But once you rule out intracranial hemorrhage, then it gets a little dicey. First off, there's very limited experience of uh, treating pregnant women with uh, intravenous thrombolysis all to place. And um, therefore, uh, I would have to really just describe hypothetical risks. Dr. Fury's talking about TPA, otherwise known as altiplase, and otherwise otherwise known as intravenous thrombolysis. TPA is the source of most of the angst you heard at the beginning of this podcast. It's a heavy-duty clot-busting medication that you give by IV because it can bust up basically every clot in your body. It has up to a 5% chance of internal bleeding. And of course, there's the risk of bleeding into the uterus. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Because 30% of your patient's blood is going to her uterus. So even though we know TPA is a large molecule, doesn't cross the placenta, the truly scary part about giving IV TPA in pregnancy is the risk of uterine hemorrhage, which could precipitate premature labor and delivery. And there are case reports of this happening. But without clinical trials, there's no data on this. You're having a discussion with your pregnant patient solely based on the theoretical risks. This is scary stuff for doctors, let alone patients. I had to know the answer. So I asked my question point blank to Dr. Fury. Would you give TPA to this patient? Um, Before I tell you her answer, there are a few more things you should know. TPA may be standard protocol in acute stroke, but the paradigm is shifting. More and more, our patients are getting CT angiogram when they hit the ER to look for a clot in the vessel. We call this a large vessel occlusion, or ELVO for short. If you find the ELVO, sometimes you can literally fish it out with mechanical thrombectomy. In 2015, five major clinical trials defined mechanical thrombectomy as the new standard of acute stroke care. Dr. Mahesh Jayaraman is a neurointerventional radiologist. In other words, he's one of these clot fishermen. The idea is to grab the clot and pull the clot out of the body as opposed to uh, breaking up the clot with medication. We go in typically into the femoral artery and we navigate a catheter all the way up the aorta and into the internal carotid artery. And then from there, we have either catheters which do aspiration, think of it almost like a vacuum cleaner, or stent retrievers, which are like a cage on a stick. Sounds pretty easy, right? And here's the thing. He's even done it in pregnant patients. We've done uh, thrombectomy on patients that are pregnant. We've done it on patients that are postpartum. And we've also treated patients with venous sinus thrombosis in pregnancy. Could it be? Have we finally found someone who's comfortable treating stroke in pregnancy? And if so, have we found a replacement for TPA? According to Dr. Jayaraman, there's not enough evidence yet to recommend skipping the TPA that we have highly effective ways to reperfuse endovascularly in some situations. We may withhold IVTPA, but certainly uh, we tend to try to do both IVTPA and thrombectomy. Things are rapidly changing. Because mechanical thrombectomy can only be done if there's a clot or large vessel occlusion, IVTPA is here to stay, at least for a while. But down in the ER, people are hopeful. I really haven't seen any horrible side effects of TPA In my practice over the last um, several years, still, I think mechanical thrombectomy makes everybody feel as though we're really solving the problem. That's Dr. Elizabeth Nestor, an attending physician in the emergency room. I ran the same case by her. A 30-year-old pregnant woman presents with just one hour of stroke symptoms. Would she give TPA to this patient? I would. I would give this patient TPA just because I've seen devastating stroke Uh, in pregnancy or um, peri-delivery. So I would give this patient TPA with much trepidation. (laughs) And how about Dr. Karen Fury, the stroke expert? What would she do? 
would she give this patient TPA? I would be reluctant to give TPA to this patient. The symptoms are mild. I would offer it as an alternative, explaining the potential risks and benefits. But ultimately, unlike many situations where the answer is very apparent in black and white, in this situation, I think that they would need to understand that we couldn't necessarily predict how this would play out. Without a doubt, this is not black or white. Dr. Fury and Dr. Nestor, two different specialists, both experts in their field, and yet two different answers. But were their answers really so different? When I talked with Dr. Fury, it was in my office. It was quiet, and we were speaking mainly about the theoretical. I met Dr. Nestor on her shift, making clinical decisions in real time. It could be that the context swayed one towards observation and the other towards treatment. But maybe it was the way I presented the information. How mild was that hand weakness? When I really pressed Dr. Fury, she admitted there was a threshold. A patient with more severe deficits, hemiplegia, for instance, would probably have gotten TPA. In other words, it's more of a spectrum than a dichotomy. And both doctors agreed, we need to work together, collaborate on these difficult questions. We started this podcast in the ER at Rhode Island Hospital, where we treat acute stroke by algorithm. We talked about secondary prevention and then primary treatment of stroke and pregnancy. How do we choose the right treatment for the patient? Remember Lily? As Lily gets closer to her due date, there's some new questions we have to answer. For example, Lily, as you recall, is taking aspirin. But if aspirin puts you at risk for bleeding, how on earth is she going to get that baby out? In other words, the question on every obstetrician's mind, can she push? I asked Dr. Mehta at Women and Infants Hospital. For labor and delivery, per se, rather bleeding associated with delivery, hemostasis is usually achieved with contraction of the uterus, not so much with actually clotting. And therefore, if a patient is on a baby aspirin, it's totally, completely fine for that patient to have a vaginal delivery. And there's no reason to expect that there will be postpartum hemorrhage. Okay, that's good news for Lily. But what about an epidural? Is that safe on blood thinners? There is no contraindication to an epidural as long as the patient is only on a baby aspirin. However, if the patient is on a low molecular weight heparin, the recommendation is for her to not get an epidural if she has received a dose in the past 24 hours. If it is therapeutic dosing, then the cutoff is 48 hours. Dr. Mehta is referring to the risk of epidural hematoma on anticoagulation. And what about breastfeeding? Baby aspirin is preferable to full dose because aspirin is excreted in breast milk. Dr. Mehta advises waiting two hours after taking a full-dose aspirin to breastfeed. This behind-the-scenes thinking happens all the time in medicine and especially in obstetrics. And the goal, of course, is to keep Lily and her baby safe and healthy throughout the pregnancy, allowing Lily to focus on the important stuff, the new mom stuff. I'm kind of a go-with-the-flow kind of person as it is, so I'm just excited to see what's going to happen. I am nervous about the whole birthing process in general and actually having a baby and the whole life change, but I'm not too nervous about what's going to happen to me medically. I, I think I'm going to be okay. Lily's due pretty soon. And even if her doctors aren't necessarily the most go-with-the-flow kind of people, sometimes this is what it takes to safeguard moms and their babies. And there you have it, folks. If, like our residents, you were curious to learn the answers. I'm very curious to learn the answer. <laughs> I hope you learned a lot today. Special thanks today to our experts from Rhode Island Hospital and Women and Infants Hospital, Dr. Elizabeth Nestor, Dr. Jordan Wolf, and Patrick McNamara in the ER, Dr. Andrew Bully, Dr. Alina Bayer, Dr. Caitlin Oliveira, and Dr. Karen Fury in the Neurology Department, 
Dr. Mahesh Jayaraman in neuroradiology, and Dr. Naharika Mehta in obstetrical medicine. Music is by Tom Van Buskirk, and it's actually based on his baby's fetal heartbeat. Production assistance by Megan Hall and Lauren Black. Big thanks to Bob Lovinger in the Lifespan Development Department, and a super big huge thanks to Larry Warner and the Rhode Island Foundation for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned for future episodes.